and welcome to the Oaks Church. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I am uh, the pastor here at the Oaks and excited to get to worship with you this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Psalm 34 as we continue a series that we started last week called This Verse Changed My Life. I'm excited about uh, this this passage of scripture, Psalm 34, just because I feel like it's one that God has used again and again in my life. I'm excited about this series because last week we got to hear from Adam. Next week we get to hear from Connor, and the week after that will be Hunter. Uh, so it's just a great time to get to look at different passages of scripture that have meant a lot in, in the lives of different people in our church. Now, as we begin in Psalm 34, I want to ask a question. Have you ever felt like you were experiencing some sort of difficulty or suffering that it just seemed like no one around you could fully grasp, could fully comprehend. I can think about different moments uh, in my life that I've felt that way, but uh, maybe perhaps a, a sillier example of that would be one of the moments that Abby and I decided to go kayaking whenever we first moved to Louisville. So Abby and I, we started kayaking whenever we first started dating. I found this old tandem kayak off Craigslist, and it became a hobby of ours. We constantly did it, you know, like whenever we're hanging out, go kayaking at a lake or a pond that was near where we lived in Florida. Now, what changed whenever we moved to Louisville is that we were no longer going to kayak in ponds or, you know, lakes where the water was nice and still, but that we were actually kayaking in creeks or streams or rivers where there was a real current. Well, the first time that we realized that this difference actually mattered was whenever we loaded up the kayak, we went to this place called Floyd's Fork. It was in the Parklands, this really nice city park in Louisville, and this river ran through it, kind of like the Little Miami River. But what we didn't take into account was the record rainfall we had been receiving. And so uh, now the current that was typically gentle yet swift was uh, compared to like white water for people of our skill level, okay? So playing it up a little bit, but I, I also just want you to know kind of where we were at in our current self-awareness at how good we were at kayaking. Okay, so we get out there and we took one vehicle, which meant wherever we left from was where we had to get back to. Okay, so some foreshadowing here. So we take this nice, you know, uh, paddle down the stream. We're like, wow, we're really cruising. Like, we barely have to paddle. This is so nice. Uh, and then it hits us as we've, you know, gone 20, 30 minutes. We've got to get back up because there's not someone parked down at the end that's going to drive us back. Like, we've got to make the trek all the way back, which means paddling furiously back. So we, we turn around, and we just begin, you know, immediately breaking a sweat, and we're trying to get back, and we're like, we may never do this. And then we drift into kind of a fallen tree that took up literally like half of, of the river, and that's whenever we decide, okay, we're going to jump ship and see if we can swim slash walk this thing back. And so there we go. We're, we're those two people that everybody else is passing with our bright orange 11-foot kayak, like walking through ankle-deep mud, sticks, stones, and just kind of, you know, finally get back to the paddling access, you know, hour later or so. And we drag this thing up the hill, and a park ranger comes by, and uh, he's got this huge smile on his face, and you know, kind of comes right to where we are, rolls down his window, and I can feel the air conditioning just pouring out of his, the cab of his truck, you know, I'm just like, oh, this is great. And he looks at me and says, how was your float? And immediately I'm like, our float? 
like all of these thoughts rushing through my head. And I'm like, do we look like we just experienced a float down the river? This was anything but like a nice relaxing float. I feel like we're out there fighting for our lives. And here we are, we finally made it back. And instead of saying any of that, I just looked at him and smiled and said, it was great. It was great. We had a great time. Now, why, why do we do that? Why, why did I choose in that moment to just smile and say it was great, everything was fine? Perhaps I didn't want to relive the, you know, the experience I just had. Maybe I didn't feel like he would care to hear my entire sob story of how you know, we th- should have thought ahead and maybe paddled up first and then came down. I mean, I don't know. But this is a silly way, perhaps, to, to depict something that we all do all the time. We downplay our difficulty. We just kind of ignore our suffering. We ignore our struggle with sin. We just kind of shrug our shoulders and act like it's that, not that bad. Whenever someone asks, how are things going, we just kind of put a smile on instead of acknowledging that sometimes life is difficult, that sometimes, sometimes things are hard, that sometimes it does feel as if life is paddling against the current. And while I'm not advocating that we constantly walk around with the weight of the world on our shoulders, acting like everything is terrible, I do think that there is a healthy recognition of difficulty, of suffering, of our daily battle with sin that actually enables us to depend upon the goodness of God all the more. That in our acknowledgement of living in a broken world and the difficulty that we face, that in the midst of that darkness, the brightness of God's goodness becomes clearer to our somewhat dim eyes. And who better to teach us that than King David from Psalm 34? Uh, We're going to see that he was in a situation that for most of us would have been the worst case scenario, and yet he's still able to praise the Lord. Who better to teach us than David? Because perhaps you come in this morning kind of wrestling with a strained relationship Maybe it's with your parents, with a friend, with a roommate, with a spouse, and and you're like, I I don't really know if if there's any hope to be found in this situation at all. Maybe you find yourself reeling from the regret of a past decision. You're thinking, can can any good come out of this? Maybe you find yourself here this morning, and there's someone that you love dearly who is going through a trial, facing suffering. You're like, how can I comfort someone who's going through something like this, who who feels a weight of depression this thick, who's dealing with something this hard, how do you help them? Who do you point them to? Uh, maybe you're, you're sitting here and say, you know, I know God is good. Perhaps I could even recite the words of this psalm, but when was the last time that a tangible realization of God's goodness moved me to genuine worship and awe of who he is You see, Psalm 34 is an invitation for us to see God who is good, to taste and see that God is good. It is a declaration that God is good. And because God is good, we can rejoice, remember, reconsider, and rest. It's going to be the outline that we work through today. Yes, alliterated for your convenience. Hunter couldn't help but smile at me, and I can't help but do it each week. Because God is good, we rejoice, remember, reconsider, and rest. Let's read Psalm 34. The scripture says that this is of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. He said, I will bless the Lord at all times. 
His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. In Psalm 34, we will find four instructions for experiencing God's goodness. Now, before we get into each one of these instructions, I want us to consider the context for a moment. I think sometimes whenever we come to the Psalms, we want to jump straight into verse 1. But the unique thing about Psalm 34 is that it provides a subscription that gives us a little bit of context. It teaches us what's going on whenever David wrote this psalm. We read right there in, in the subscription, a part of scripture. This is of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Well, what is taking place there? If we miss this subscription, then it's possible we could almost picture David pinning this psalm sitting in his palace. But what we find here is that David is far from the luxuries that Israel offered. He is nowhere near the comfort of the throne or the palace, but that he is in a dark place. This is during his, his run away from, from King Saul. King Saul knew that God had given David the throne, and so he is seeking to take David's life. He's seeking to kill him. So David is on the run. And he runs to a place that he knows that Saul would never go, a place that perhaps Saul would never think to go. He goes to a place called Gath. Now, why is Gath so important? Well, because Gath was the hometown of one of David's most notable opponents. The hero of Gath, or should I say the once hero of Gath, was Goliath, he whom David slew and became famous for. And so now David seeks refuge in the hometown of Goliath, where he was famous for all of the wrong reasons. He would have been an unwelcome guest there. And because of David's fame, there are several people in this city of Gath that recognize who David is. David is seeking refuge, and then he actually gets taken captive there. He's dragged before King Achish. 
uh, also known as King Abimelech. All the pagan names, pagan kings during that time were nicknamed Abimelech, much like you know, Caesar, just kind of the Roman name for all, all Caesars during that time. Uh, he's dragged before King Achish, King Abimelech, and in an act of cunning begins to just act insane. First uh, Samuel 21.13 says, So he changed his behavior before them, and he pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks on the doors of the gate. He even let spit run down his beard. And after looking at him, King Achish said, I don't know who this is, but it's not David. I have enough madmen in this kingdom. Get this guy out of here. And in that moment, David is delivered. David was taken captive in moments away from losing his life, and God preserves him. God saves him. And in light of God's deliverance, experiencing God's tangible goodness in that moment while he is still on the run, he pins this psalm and says, the Lord is good. His praise will continually be in my mouth. I will praise him at all the time. Every time, whenever I sought the Lord, he answered me. He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. He can't contain his praise in the midst of adversity and affliction because he recognizes the goodness of God in his suffering, not apart from it. And so here are the four instructions that we will see will be to rejoice, to remember, to reconsider, and to rest. And the first of those is to rejoice in the Lord at all times. We rejoice in the Lord at all times. Look at verse 1 with me. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. When does David say he'll praise the Lord? All the time. Now, how is he able to do that? Whether he is slaying the giant or whether he is on the run for his life, he is praising the Lord. How is that possible? It's because his worship was not based upon his current circumstances or his emotions, or his perspective, his worship was based upon the unchangeable character of God. His worship was based upon the fact that he knew who God was, he knows who God is, and he knows who God will always be. If our worship of God, if our rejoicing, if our worship is based upon our current circumstances or our feelings, it will be sporadic or untrustworthy at best. But if our eyes are fixed upon the God who is good, then we will consistently thank him and praise him for his goodness. You see, the main theme of this psalm is that God is good. And it is good for us to know that God is, in his essence, good. Everything about him is good because he is the source and standard of goodness. It means that every other attribute of God could be defined by his goodness. So consider God's grace. God's grace is his goodness toward undeserving sinners. God's mercy is his goodness extended in long suffering to us who do not deserve his patience, who mess up again and again and again, and yet God is mercifully good. God's provision is his goodness to us as creatures who are completely dependent 100% of the time. There is not a character or aspect of God that is not defined by good. He is all time good. All the time he is good as the source and standard of good. 
This means that everything he does is good, that he gives good commands, that he makes good plans, that he bestows good gifts, that God is good. Stephen Charnock, a theologian, summarizes it in this way. He says he's not first God and then afterwards good. Guys, I don't know what's going on here. I've moved this thing like four times. All right. I'm going to use the handheld mic for, for your sake. We'll get back to what Stephen Charnock said here in a second. So here's the deal, guys. You know what's amazing is that we set up the full sound system for our church every Saturday. And our media team and our setup team is awesome. Uh, so while we may hear a couple like cracks, it is amazing that we have people in, in our church that work so hard to put this together each week. So thank you guys. Yeah. All right, so let's get rolling here. Stephen Charnock, he says he is not first God and then afterwards good, but he is good as he is God. His essence being one and the same is formerly and equally God and good. What does this mean for you personally? It means that God sustains you whenever you feel too weak. But his grace is sufficient for you because your God is good. What does this mean for you personally as you seek to take what may feel like an abstraction of God's goodness and bring it home to your own heart? It means that although the world around you may look at you and walk away, your God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It means that though you may mess up, 100, 1,000 times that your Lord is merciful to save, that he meets you where you are and meets your every need. The goodness of God is extremely practical. And for the first 12 years of my life, I grew up in kind of a small rural church, and each Sunday was pretty predictable. The pastor would get up and and he would say, right before he began his sermon, God is good, and the whole congregation would respond all the time. And then he would say all the time, and the congregation would respond, God is good. And I loved this part of the worship gathering because I actually got to speak up as kind of this, you know, elementary age kid. It was my time to, you know, put in my two cents and be loud during the worship gathering. But as I got older, I began to realize that this constant rhythm in the life of our church was a concrete evidence of, of God's goodness. Uh, that as I looked around the congregation and thought about who was there, the, the terminally ill man who's holding his wife's hand and doesn't know how much longer he has to live, the young lady who is struggling with infertility and really wants to be a mom, the person who's slipped into the same sin again and cannot believe that they chose sin over obeying God again, that each one of them in unison would say, my God is always good and God is good all the time. We constantly need to rejoice in understanding that the Lord is good. It is why David here says, I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. But not only that, in verse three, he moves into an invitation, not just in individual worship, 
but invitational worship. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. He is speaking to the people of God, to the people of Israel. And he is saying, rejoice with me in the Lord. Praise the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This year, our theme as a church has been better together, worshiping together, serving together, living on mission together. And here we see the beauty of Christian community. That King David, as our brother in the faith, can come to us through Psalm 34 and put his hand on our shoulder and says, draw near to the presence of God with me. Come with me to the fountain of goodness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I know you may be going through it right now. I know that perhaps you are confused and all out of answers. Come magnify the Lord with me. Could it be that right now your view of God is just too small? He's not downplaying your difficulty. He's not saying that the problems or the struggles or the suffering that you're facing is insignificant. He can relate. And yet he says, magnify the Lord. Because right now your view of him might be too small. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, how is he able to, to have that kind of praise? Maybe you're sitting here right now and you're like, I, I don't know if I can see the way forward. I don't know if I can rejoice right now. See, the best way to see the way forward is to look back. The best indicator of God's future goodness is reflecting on God's past goodness to you. And so we remember the second instruction for experiencing God's goodness is to remember the goodness of God. Have you ever questioned God's goodness? Uh, maybe you'd say, no, I haven't. I know God is good. Maybe in a moment of honesty, you'd say, you know what, I have. Going through something difficult or hard, I've questioned the goodness of God. And if we're honest, each one of us have questioned the goodness of God in some way. Maybe there was a moment that you're just complaining about something that happened at work or some unforeseen inconvenience. You're, you're grumbling, and in that moment, you're questioning God's good design, God's good plans. Uh, maybe you find yourself, in, and you're, you're kind of tailspinning in anxiety or worry. In that moment, have you forgotten that your world, your world is upheld by a God who is good, who relates to you as a loving father and ultimately knows what is best for your life. See, Psalm 34 teaches us to repent of doubting God's goodness and to remember all the times that God has been good to us. One of my favorite features on the iPhone is those little photo albums that are created each day. Whenever you swipe to the screen that has the My Memories collection and you, you click on it and it just kind of takes 10 random pictures from your photo roll and puts them all together. And you scroll through them and you're reminded of people or times or places or events or seasons of life that you weren't even thinking about before. It's just kind of this flood of memories. Here it's almost as in ver verses four through 10, as if David is kind of reflecting this mini photo album of all the times that God has been faithful to him. He's reflecting on that experience in 1 Samuel 21. And he says that he sought the Lord and God answered him in verse four. God delivered him from all of his fears. He says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. 
we have reasons to remember the goodness of God. That whenever we cry out to him, he hears our prayers. That those who look to him are radiant. And their faces aren't shamed. Now, we, we, won't put our trust who in one, who, we won't put our trust in one who is unable to deliver. We won't put our hope in something that is temporary or ever-changing. No, but that if we trust in the Lord, that he hears us, that his ear is inclined toward us, that our faces will not be ashamed but radiant. He says here that as a poor man he cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. He silences a common misconception that we somehow have to fix ourselves before crying out to God. And yet he describes himself as a poor man full of trouble. And in that moment of desperation, he cries out to the Lord and the Lord hears and saves. What could it be right now that you're like, I have to cry out to the Lord with this. I'm crying out to the Lord for this person's salvation. I'm crying out to the Lord for this thing about my future in which I am dreadfully afraid. I'm crying out to the Lord right now because I've sought every other source of hope that I could find and it has been left weighed and wanting. Maybe you're not a Christian and this is the moment in which you cry out to the Lord as a sinner in need of mercy and grace, as a sinner in need of saving and he hears and answers your prayer. You see, David here recites many reasons that he is thankful for the goodness of God. He is remembering the goodness of God. And for those of us who know the Lord on this side of the cross, we have a greater reason to remember God's goodness than even David did. He experienced a deliverance from a situation, and through Christ, we experience the deliverance of sin and we no longer face the death that we deserve. The greatest picture of God's goodness is the good news that is the gospel. The greatest picture of God's goodness is in the events that took place on Good Friday. That God the Father loved us so much that he did not leave us in our sin, but that he sent his own son for us. You see, we don't deserve God's goodness. We deserve wrath. The wages of sin is Death. We have rebelled against a holy God, unable to obey his commands and unwilling to do so. And yet, whenever we deserved death, God the Father sent his only Son to save us, to become our substitute, to take the penalty that we deserved, to die the death that we should have died, and to raise again, to give us life. Is there any greater picture of God's goodness that we could remember? And so we, with David here, remember God's goodness, that whenever we sought the Lord, when we cried out to him, he answered. That the shame we once felt for our sin has been removed by Christ. And that whenever we were poor and needy, completely spiritually bankrupt, we cried out to the Lord and he heard our prayer, prayers and saved us from our troubles. And in reflecting on God's goodness, David with overwhelming joy says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's amazing that he uses these two verbs. Sometimes the word pictures in scripture are lost on us. 
Sometimes the metaphor might be agricultural and we're not, we don't live in the same society or maybe just the time gap and we, we can't fully comprehend it. But whenever David uses the words taste and see, immediately it clicks. A taste like honey to the tongue or a meal that satisfies whenever you're starving. See, like that moment that you're camping and that you're kind of in deep fog and darkness and the sun begins to rise over the horizon and everything is illuminated. These pictures of taste and see that the Lord is good just make sense to us. This past Friday, uh, we, our family went to the, the grand opening of Cohatch, a co-working space where the Oaks is officing right now. And uh, it, it was great. We went there and they had like a live DJ and a photo booth and a free ice cream truck, which was obviously the highlight of the whole situation. And uh, Abby and I got ice cream. You know, Brooks is eating some of our ice cream, and our two-year-old Charlie just wouldn't touch it. And it's it's not because like he you know doesn't like sugar or anything like that, but just because even though he's extremely adventurous, his menu is like five items. Okay, uh, and so here we are, and we're we're trying to get him to taste this ice cream, and we're describing it in as many ways as we can. We're like, buddy, it's it's soft. It's cold, it's creamy, it's sweet. And then eventually, just kind of after prodding him enough, he, he makes the decision, okay, I'm gonna try this. It looks like they're enjoying it. And so Charlie just kind of leans in. We didn't think to tell him like how one goes about eating ice cream. So it's just this full collision of face and chocolate ice cream, you know, just kind of like mouth was involved, but then, then everything else too. And then he kind of steps away and you can just see like, taste buds tingling, synapses firing, like this whole thing, you know, like this series is called This First Changed My Life, and, and that moment changed his life, okay? He's, he's like right there, and then he just looks up at us, and he says, I want more, and then he like takes another, another taste, and then uh, he kind of like started to like wiggle and dance, and he says, this stuff has me moving, and we're like, that's right, buddy, this is, this is good stuff, and so, so we, what happened in, what happened in that moment? Something that was just kind of, at first, a distant experience and just a list of facts that we tried to, tried to display to him. It's cold, it's sweet, it's creamy. You'll, you'll like it. In that moment, it became a personal experience. And he declared with his own mouth, I have tasted, and this is good. David here is speaking to the Christian. And he's saying, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't forget that the Lord is good. Whenever your soul is craving, don't forget that goodness is found in the Lord alone. Taste and see that he is good. David here speaks to a watching and wandering world, saying there is a seat for you at the table of God. And you have sought to fill that hunger in a million other places. And your eyes have shifted to things that will not satisfy. But come and taste and see that the Lord is good. To each of us who are prone to forget the goodness of God, David is saying, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. You see, these cravings are a good thing whenever they lead us toward the Lord. But... But we have to recognize that we will search for something to satisfy. 
that our eyes will fix their focus on something. And Satan knows this craving all too well. It's a good thing whenever this leads us to the Lord, but it can also be something that, that whenever our desires settle on the wrong things, drive us into destruction. Consider what happened in the book of Genesis, where, where Satan says, hey, doesn't this, doesn't this tree look like it would taste good? Can't you see that it would be good? In Genesis 3, 6, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was, be, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You see, he said, doesn't it look like this would taste good? And she said, I think so. And she saw that it would be good with her eyes. And she, she disbelieved the promise of God, disobeyed the command of God. She took and she ate. And then Adam ate as well as he was just kind of standing there watching it all unfold, equally as guilty as she was. And in that moment, sin entered into the world and broke all that God had declared good. God in his goodness sets it right again. But we can't fail to see here that sin often portrays itself as sweet and yet always becomes bitter on the tongue. That yes, it looks good to the eyes. It shines like diamonds and yet cuts our hands like shards of glass. You see, sin is bitter. Only the Lord is good. And perhaps you're, you're thinking, okay, well, is the Lord enough? Is God truly all that I need? Verse 10 is a great comfort. It says, the young lions suffer want and hunger but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David says that the lion has cubs that go to bed hungry at night. The king of the jungle has children that are starving, but the king of kings has kids who lack no good thing. You have all that you need in Christ. Do you believe that? Sometimes we can read a passage like this and, and think to ourselves, why is my experience of God's goodness sometimes feel so different than what David portrays here? And could it be that our definition of what a good life is, is askew? It's distorted. It doesn't line up with that of Scripture. And this is why verses 11 through 18 invite us to reconsider the good life. Verse 11, David says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? In verse 11, there's this shift in which Psalm 34 becomes a classroom. And David, as a good teacher, says, Come, O children, let me teach you a little bit about life. Let me teach you a little bit about walking with the God who is good. Then he asks a rhetorical question in verse 12. He says, What man is there who desires to see many days? who desires to see some good? And the obvious answer to that question is all of us. We all wanna see good. And we all want to live a life that would be considered a good life, full of good things. But consider his answer for a moment. The way that he describes life that is good, that is glorifying to God is not just a life that is free of trouble or, or where we have everything that we need or want. No, it is a life that is glorifying to God. When Peter reflected on this psalm in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, put away malice and seek to grow up in the salvation that you have received, having tasted and seen that the Lord is good. 
You see, a good life and to experience the goodness of God is living a God-glorifying life. And he gives a few instructions here in verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. How opposite this is from verse one where he teaches us to praise the Lord at all times. He says, avoid anything that would be speaking harshly, wrongly, evilly. And in verse 14, he says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Uh, for those of us who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying, be holy as God is holy. To walk with the Lord and to reflect him in everything you do. Anything good in us is essentially God in us. To experience good is to live a godly life, to turn away from evil, to seek peace, to pursue it, to pursue the presence of God. In verse 17, he teaches us to experience the goodness of God by crying out to him. He says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted, that he saves the crushed in spirit? Perhaps the good life is not just being free from trouble or struggles or suffering, but knowing that you can run to the God who is good in the midst of them. And here we rest. Yes, the Christian life requires effort and vigilance, a fighting the good fight of faith, but all of that effort flows from the rest that God has provided in his redeeming work, which brings us to our last instruction that we rest in God's redemption. In verse 19, David recalibrates our expectations of the Christian life. Uh, the narrow road is littered with many weary and, and discouraged Christians who thought that their walk with the Lord would be something more like a stroll down the sidewalk than an uphill climb. And yet David in verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. If you, are, if you are a righteous person, if you're walking with the Lord, you will experience many afflictions. And yet the promise is that the Lord will be near to you in them all, that he will deliver you out of them all. You will be no stranger to suffering, but you will be well acquainted with the Lord when you walk through suffering. And perhaps a helpful truth that enables you to endure is that the Lord will not protect you from what he will perfect you through. That a part of your sanctifying process is going through moments in which you cry out to the Lord and cling to him. That God will not protect you from those things that he will perfect you through to conform you to the image of Christ. Which is why James would tell us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In verses 15 through 20. 15 through 22, David contrasts two groups of people, the wicked and the righteous, those who seek to serve themselves and those who seek to serve the Lord, those who find their refuge in the Lord and those who seek their refuge in other things and are ultimately destroyed. One of those people are redeemed and one of those people are not. Which group are you in? Are you able to say from personal experience, I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good? Are there rhythms in your life, like running to scripture that are a constant remembrance of the goodness of God, worshiping with other believers, 
that is a constant remembrance of the goodness of God. The ability to reconsider what it means to live a good life and for that to be more in line with what God says in his word than what others say in the world. Here we rest in God's redemption because there was another who was dragged by lawless men in front of a ruler and put on trial. And yet, what we find is that he was much greater than King David. He was King Jesus. And he was not released as King David was in what took place in Psalm 34, but that he was sentenced to death in our place. We read here in this psalm, that verse 20 says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And we find that that is not about King David, but a greater king that would come, that John 19, 26 would utter these words, repeat them, echoing all the way from this chapter, point to Christ and say, look, he has died satisfying the wrath of God. He has uttered, it is finished accomplishing everything needed for our salvation and not one of his bones is broken. Yes, the righteous has experienced affliction, but he will rise again and offer life to all who believe. Therefore, we rejoice in the goodness of God because the Son of God gave his life for ours. We remember uh, the goodness of God because we are so prone to forget what Christ has done for us. We reconsider the good life because it is living as Christ has lived, because he purchased us and placed the Holy Spirit within us, and we rest in God's redemption because the cross of Christ has declared it is finished. You see, God doesn't promise a float down the river of life, but he does promise to be with us every single step of the way. Our God is near and our God is good. Let's pray.